Well, good morning, Redeemer. Uh, before we open God's word, I did want to take a, a few moments to say thank you. Um, yesterday, there were a lot of you who uh, showed up at our house and helped us move completely out of our house because of the flooding. And, um, and it's not just us. There were several members in the life of the church who've been affected by flooding. And uh, you guys showed up, whether it's moving stuff, packing stuff, giving us place to store stuff, um, crying with us. Thank you, Redeemer, for um, just being a sweet, sweet, sweet picture of what it means to be the body. And so we are indebted to you. We're going to uh, continue worshiping the Lord through Mark chapter 14. So I'll give you a few moments. Mark chapter 14 will be in verses 1 through 11. This is God's word. And it was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and to kill him. For they said, let's not do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at a table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard very costly, and she broke the flask and she poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can go do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. So think about that. Like We're talking about her now. Because Jesus says, whenever the gospel is proclaimed, we'll hear about her. It's beautiful. And then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, uh, thank you for your word and thank you for worship and thank you for calling us here to uh, engage you and to give you honor and, and praise. And thank you, Lord, that worship is not just what we do, but worship is also what you do with your people when we engage you. And so we believe that your word is living, it's inspired, it's active that it penetrates our hearts, it exposes our desires, that it conforms us to the image of Christ, that it is good for our souls. And so we read it, trusting that you are speaking to us through it. And to the degree that we are faithful to preach your word, you are also speaking to your people. And so, Lord, I pray that you will speak to your people through your servant, that your name will be exalted. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled our time this morning, uh, A Pivotal Moment of Clarity Before the Passion of Christ. A Pivotal Moment of Clarity 
before the passion of Christ. Uh, if you are into movies, then there are some movies uh, where you get what directors would call a moment of clarity. You got to understand that a director has to figure out how to keep you in the seat and to keep you engaged in their movie for two hours. And one of the ways that they do that is they expose tension. They introduce characters, they introduce conflict, and once they kind of hook you with that, then you kind of want to stay and, and linger with it. But there comes a point in when every good director will give you a moment of clarity. It's that particular scene in the movie where everything that they have been doing behind the scenes, it comes to life and it starts to make sense. And you have this sense of awareness of what's going on. That one of my favorite movies is, is one called The Sixth Sense. And the director is M. Night Shyamalan. And I will not give the movie away. I will say that it was the second highest grossing movie of 1999. And it's only behind Star Wars. So if you haven't seen it, I think you ought to go see it or go rent it or Netflix it if you can. Uh, but there's a scene in the movie. And the scene is this. I see dead people who think that they are alive. And that's the moment of clarity. The entire movie makes sense and your mouth will drop just like the character in the movie is Bruce Willis because everything kind of comes into focus right then. That's what's happening in our passage this morning. It's a moment of clarity. Jesus has said three different times in Mark's gospel that I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be betrayed into the hands of these people. But here's what we don't know. In Mark's gospel, Mark has not told us how Jesus will die. Mark has not told us what time of year it will be when Jesus dies. Mark hasn't told us who will betray Jesus. Mark hasn't told us uh, how Jesus would die on a cross. That, that, that's kind of, it's there, but it's not there. Mark hasn't kind of revealed to us the father's role in all of this. Like, is God really a good father if he actually lets his son suffer and die? Could God not do something about that to stop that? These are all questions that, that you read. If you were a first-time reader of Mark, you would be reading this with all of these questions, and then you get to Mark 14, and it's a moment of clarity. A lot of these things that we didn't see or didn't know, they're starting to come into focus. For example, Mark says that it's two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And we're supposed to say, oh, okay, I get it. Now we know when Jesus will die. But Mark does more. He uncovers more. And so that's what I want us to think about this passage through that lens. What is being revealed that has been hidden in Mark's gospel for a time? And the first thing I think that's being revealed right here is a grave warning is revealed. A grave warning. Now, just to think about how this passage is structured, 
This is another instance of what, what commentators call a Markin sandwich. You've heard me say that before. If you've listened to anybody preach through Mark, you've probably heard them say the same thing. It's because we're reading the same books, all right? Well, what, what's a Markin sandwich? Think about going to Subway or, I don't know, Nukes maybe, right, since we're right around the corner from Nukes. I like the Nukes Q. That's kind of my favorite sandwich at Nukes. But it's like bread, and then you have the chicken and the cheese and the bacon and that sauce that's not good for you in the middle, right? And then right under it, you have another piece of bread. And together, that whole thing makes this sandwich that is beautiful to the, ta- to the, to the, to the mouth, right? Well, in the same way, Mark has done a sandwich with, with literary devices. So notice verses 1 through 2, he talks about the scribes and the chief priests. And then the scene turns to the woman, and then it goes back to Judas, who is in cahoots with the scribes and the chief priests. In other words, what you have is the scribes and the chief priests, they're the top of the bread, and then Judas is the bottom of the bread. And then the woman is kind of in the middle. And, 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 and here's what you ha- how you have to interpret those things when you find them structured this way in Mark's gospel. The two things at the top and the bottom, they go together. You can't understand the top or the bottom without the whole, which is why you see the top piece, right? Verses one through two, it's the scribes and it's the Pharisees. And it's two days before the scribes and the chief priests. It's two days before the feast of the unleavened bread and Passover. And and, and they've had enough. If you've been tracking with Mark the last several chapters, they have been sending people to Jesus. They sent the Pharisees. They sent the Sadducees. They sent the Herodians. And then finally, the scribes themselves came to Jesus. And why were they sending all of these religious and these political groups to Jesus? They were doing this to catch Jesus in a trap so that Jesus would say something that would turn the people against him so that they would have an excuse to kill him. But every time they sent the Herodians or the Pharisees or the Sadducees or themselves, Jesus always embarrassed them. He always answered their questions and he always did it beautifully and masterfully so that the very ones who tried to trip him up ended up looking embarrassed. And so now they've had enough. And you've heard the motto, if you can't beat them, then you join them. That's not the scribes and the chief priests. That's not their motto for life. Their motto for life is if you can't beat Jesus, then you just kill him. And if you read the text, look at what it says. It actually says they were seeking a way to arrest him and underline by stealth. Their intention was not to make a big scene out of this and to kill him. For they said, let's not do this during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And so you got to understand how they're thinking. They're thinking we don't like Jesus. He's embarrassed us. He's smarter than us. He's stronger than us. He's more godly than us. And therefore, if we relinquish that, then we're done. So we want to kill him. But we can't do it in public because if we do it in public, we'll look like the bad guys. So somehow we got to find a way to get him in the quiet of night. And if it were up to us, Jesus would not go to a cross. They would off Jesus throw his body somewhere in the woods and you would see missing person papers all over Jerusalem. Have you seen this guy? 
Their plan was not the cross. They didn't want it to be that big. They didn't want it to draw a scene. Let's do it quiet. Let's do it in stealth. Now, you got a problem. They need an inside job. They need someone who knows, man, how many dudes Jesus got in his entourage? Where they like to go and hang out? They got weapons? Where does he go and pray? Where is he going to eat? We need somebody on the inside to give us that information so that we then can go to that place where they're going to be and take him, not in the daytime, not to make a scene, a scene and then we're going to do away with him. They need an inside job. Well, who's going to do it? You get the bottom piece of the bread. It's Judas. And did you see the irony here? They don't even have to go and get Judas. Look at verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the 12, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. Now, if I'm over here and I'm a chief priest and a scribe and I'm trying to figure out a way to get Jesus and I just need an inside job, but then Judas come knocking on the door and I don't even got to go find him. He just shows up. I'm like, Lord, you put him in my lap. We can just do our business and it must be providential because you gave him to us. And we later know that Jesus, Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Now, what was it that would cause Jesus, Judas, to leave and to go? John chapter 12 and Mark 14, they go together like hand in glove. In other words, in John 12, John recounts this scene, the same scene that Mark does in Mark 14. And if you were to read it, there were some things would be very similar. And then a few things would be different. And one of the things that would be different is how the disciples respond to the woman. Notice in Mark's gospel. It says that some of them in that room, some as in plural, some of them said to themselves, why would she waste this? And then they scolded her. But if you turn over to John, John doesn't say that they said it. Here's what John 12 actually says. Notice how similar it sounds. John 12, 4, when this went down, John writes, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he said, why was this ointment not sold for 30, 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. In other words, in John chapter 12, this is John. Now, see, Mark was not one of the original 12. He gets his gospel, we think, from Peter. And so he writes generically, like some of them in the room. John, who was actually in the room, he says, wait a minute, Mark. Let me just tell you who the ringleader was. It was Judas. Judas was the one who said this. And then the rest of us were like, oh, yeah, Jesus this could have been given to the poor. Now, why would all of the disciples think that this should have been given to the poor? If you turn back one chapter in Mark, it's in the temple. 
And it's right when the widow, the poor widow, gives her two pennies and Jesus points to her and says, that poor woman has given more than everyone in the temple. And if you go back a few chapters later, previous in Mark, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus with all his possessions, what did Jesus say? He says, you want to follow me? Go sell all you have and give it to the who? The poor. When John the Baptist was about to be beheaded and he asked Jesus, are you really the Christ? Jesus says, you go tell them the lame walk, the deaf hear, and the poor have good news preached to them. Then Jesus say, when you throw your parties, don't invite people who can't repay you. You go invite the poor. And so when you have all of that, you got three years of hearing Jesus's heart for the poor. And then you got this woman who throws this oil on Jesus. And then you got Judas who's been helping himself to the money bag. Man, Jesus, you told us to love the poor. And the disciples are like, you know what, Jesus? That actually sounds kind of right. Now, we know Judas's intentions. He didn't care for the poor. It actually says he used to take money, money out of the collection plate and help himself to it. And so what Judas really wanted to do, go sell that oil, put that money in his collection plate. Let me get my cut and then I'll give it to the poor. Now, here's the dangers, right, the, the grave warnings that I think come out in this passage. And they're twofold. One is this. Knowing the word is not good enough. The scribes, they were the ones that Herod called. Where is Jesus going to be born? He called the scribes. And they're the same ones in our passage who want to kill Jesus. In other words, an awareness of Scripture does not mean we know the God of Scripture. Did not Satan twist Scripture with Adam and Eve? What about when Satan tempted Jesus in Matthew, you know how he tempted Jesus in Matthew? The devil took Jesus to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Satan is quoting scripture to Jesus, and Satan hates the Lord. And so I don't think we can only make our knowledge of Scripture the litmus test for if we truly know the Lord. You have people in this passage who know the Scripture better than probably everybody in this room, and they want to crucify the Lord of glory. That's the grave danger. But it's another grave danger, right? You see it through Judas just because you serve the living word does not mean you know the Lord. Did you notice how Mark says in verse 10, 
and Judas being one of the twelve. That's Mark's way of saying, whoa, this guy broke bread with Jesus. This guy walked with Jesus. This guy was commissioned and cast out demons with the power of God. This guy kept the money for Jesus. And yet what you see is this guy is the guy who is using Jesus to get money and who will sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Proximity to the written word, proximity in serving the living word. They do not guarantee that we're in the kingdom. And here's a question that I've been wrestling through. How do you get there? Like, how do you get there? Because in my mind, that's an epic fail. That's an epic failure. That if you can know the Bible and then play the role in crucifying the God of the Bible, how do you get there? And if you've been walking with Jesus for three years and all of a sudden they don't have to seek you out, but you go and seek them out to betray him for 30 pieces of silver. How do you get there? I don't think we wake up and we're there. I think it's a thousand small, unrepentant failures that build up over time. And it hardens our heart to God and the things of God. Did you catch what John says about Judas? He used to help himself to the money bag. I'd imagine that it started right over here. I got money coming in. Let me, let me get a few coins out of the pot. We good. Ain't nobody see it. We could. Okay, we got some more money. Well, let me get a little more money out the money pot. And then some more money and some more money. And all of a sudden, your God is money. And all of a sudden, you will betray the Lord of glory for 30 pieces of silver. And how do you do that, right? If you're a scribe, all you do is build it in your heart. He is not true. He is not true. I will not listen. He is not true. He is not true. And that goes on over and over and over and over. And all of a sudden, now I'm frustrated. Now I can't stand to see him. And now I want him dead. You don't just wake up there. I think it's unrepentant, unconfessed sin that just runs rampant. And we pet it. And we run from it and we don't run from it. We dabble with it and we won't kill it. And if we don't kill it, it will be killing us. The truth is one of my favorite rappers, D-A-T-R-U-T-H, the truth. And I've been following him for decades now, I think. And... Um, there was one point in his life where there was a fall, a great fall, and he's restored and he's making music again and he's speaking again. But it was a really hard fall, especially for those of us who really got into uh, his music. But he has a song and the song is called Lights. And just think about it. He's had this fall and this is on the other side where he's been restored. But listen to his words. 
He says, now I'm wondering if I will ever recover where there'll be light at the end of this tunnel for the rest of my life. I'll remember this struggle. It wasn't all of a sudden. It was subtle. What ended up as a flood started out as a puddle. Yeah, I should have stayed in the huddle. I never should have let my hair down like Rapunzel. He's like, I should have stayed in the huddle. I should have been confessing. I should have been with the body of Christ. And this puddle right here turned into a flood because I let my hair down like Rapunzel. That's how you wake up. And you want 30, sil- 30 pieces of silver. That's how you wake up and you want to kill the author of life. And you can look at this passage two ways. You can look at it and point the finger at Judas and the scribes. And you could say, how could they? Or you could look at it like Jesus wants us to look at it. Outside of the grace of God. There go I. So help me, Jesus, to fight and to confess and to repent and to turn. That's the warning in the passage. Serving Jesus can mean nothing. Knowing scripture can mean nothing. The second thing we see in the passage is the great worth of Jesus. So the first thing Mark reveals to us is this great, these grave warnings. The second thing he reveals to us is this great worth of Jesus. And you see that in verses three through nine. Now, all of this takes place in the home of Simon, who Mark tells us is a leper in the town of Bethany. Bethany was one of Jesus's favorite places to go. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this feast that Simon is throwing, and and it's kind of weird, right? He says that Simon is a leper, right? But here's the thing. Simon can't be actively leprous or no one would come to his party. If you were a Jew, you couldn't go into the home of a leper. They had to be out in a leper colony. And so somehow this Simon who had leprosy is now healed and now he's throwing this party. And all of a sudden, this unnamed woman in Mark's gospel, she just shows up and y'all, she breaks all protocol. I'm just telling you, if you were a first century woman, what this woman just does, it is like breaking all of the protocol. She breaks socioeconomic protocol. She, I mean, she's just, look, I, she, she is not one. She's not supposed to interrupt dinner. She's not supposed to draw attention to what she's doing. And in the middle of the feast, y'all, this woman like breaks this alabaster flask in the middle of the feast. You see, I think that's one of the reasons why these men are mad because she's like, she doesn't care what they think. And she breaks this flask. She doesn't screw the top off. She breaks it, which means that its contents can never go back in there. Whatever's in there is out, is over with, is done with. And did you see the estimation of what she does? It's 300 denarii. We use pennies and cents, and that's not our currency. But a one denarii, if you went to work for one day, 
in Jesus' day, you got one denarii for one day's work. So 300 denarii is 300 days work. Now, just kind of, you know, do some math there. But when you kind of count that, man, it's raining and we can't go to work today and we're working six days a week. And then you got these Jewish holidays and festivals. You are at least one year in of salary here. You go to work for one year and save up everything you made in one year. And then when Jesus walks through the door, you break it and you pour it. That's what's happening here. And so when the disciples see this, they're like, Jesus, you know how many miles we could have fed with that? You know how many homeless children we could have put in a shelter? You know how many homeless people we can take off the street? Do you know how many struggling people we could have done with that money right there? That's a whole year, maybe a year and a quarter of money, and it's being poured out right there. It's being wasted. Notice what Jesus says. He loves the poor. He is pro the poor. You got to hear that. But notice what he does in this verse. Look at verse 6. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. You will always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. He says what she did was beautiful. And Mark 13, when his disciples came out of the temple, you know what they thought beauty was? Look at the stones of the temple. Look how beautiful it is. Look how good it is. And what did Jesus say back then? Ain't one stone right here from this temple going to be standing. He says, but the next chapter, I'm going to show you real beauty. And real beauty is right here with this unnamed woman who pours out a year's worth of oil upon me. Now, look, I tried to find spike nard, which is the oil of the nard here. And essential living, I think, isn't that the name of it? They do the oil, essential, what is it now? Young living, man, it's essential oils, young living, you got me, thank you. I learned it's from India, and it's very wealthy, I mean, very expensive. And this woman takes what we think could be 20 ounces, and in John's gospel, the oil is poured out on his feet, and Mark's gospel, the oil is poured out on his head. What's the picture? He got a little bath in the most expensive oil in the known world at that moment. And this woman could not have afforded this. This may have been a family heirloom that was passed down to her. And at that precise moment, when Jesus walks through the door, she pours it. Now, who is the woman? Mark doesn't tell us, but John does. John tells us 
that this is Mary, not the mother of Jesus. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and the sister of Martha. And this all happens right after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. <laughs> and in that midst, Mary has a moment of clarity. Who is this guy that has healed this leper and brought him back into the fellowship in Bethany? And who is this guy who has raised my brother from the dead just by saying, Lazarus, come out? Who is this guy? And in a moment, Mary sees that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And in order for him to be the resurrection and the life, he is going to have to go and die that he might raise all of his people from the grave to himself forever. And she has a glimpse that, that no one sees it. This is a moment of clarity that our Savior is about to go to a cross. And while all of y'all men are in the room judging me, that the most precious person and thing in the room is not my salary. And it's not this oil that's been passed down from family to family. The most precious possession in the house is Jesus. And I'm going to pour out my prized possession upon him because he's worthy and he's worth it. And Jesus commends her. It's as if he is saying, y'all, look at her. I'm putting her up on a pedestal. And this is what I'm calling you to. If you name the name of Jesus, I'm calling you to cherish me above everything, everything in the world. I am more precious to you than that. I'm more precious to you than your children. And I'm more precious to you than your home and all of your stuff in your home. And when floods threaten it and you have to get it out and you don't know what's going to be standing, you'll see that nothing do I have that I brought into the world and nothing can I take out of the world. And when you bury your spouse and you wonder, will I make it? And when things get hard and you wonder, can I make it? You start to see that when the dust settles, these things are good but they're not ultimate. He is. There is one person who will truly never leave us and never forsake us. There is one person who has reconciled our souls to our living God. There is one person who is the truth, the way, and the life. And it's him. And she sees it. And therefore, her most prized possession is laid right at the feet of Jesus to prepare his body for burial. Don't you want that? 
where we live with this awareness that our hearts may fail, our strength may fail, but the Lord is our portion forever? That's what she's getting. In that moment, she gets it. How do you get to that point? You see, I don't think you just wake up and get it. That passion, I see it in some of you, and at times I see it in my own heart. You don't just wake up and become that sold out and that like just Jesus consumes you, right? You don't just get there overnight. You know how you get there? It's through small moments of obedience and the small moments of abiding in his presence. And these small things, they start to add up and they add up and they add up and they add up. And all of a sudden you start to look up down the road and you are in a place that you never thought you'd be spiritually. You see, this is the same Martha when her sister, I mean the same Mary, when Martha tried to have the feast for Jesus. And Martha's like, Jesus, you got to get Mary to come over and help me with this salmon croquette, right? <laughs> Jesus, you better get Mary over here and help her to vacuum this flow. Jesus, you got to get Mary over here and help me to prepare this feast. And what did Jesus tell Martha? Mary has chosen what is good. She has sat at my feet and she has learned. You don't just wake up with that right there. It's through that posture of coming to Jesus and coming to Jesus and coming to Jesus. Now here's my question and I wanna end with this last point. How do we get that? It's the last point. It's when we make much of the glorious wisdom of God. So the first thing we see is a grave it's a grave warning. The second thing is this great worth. This third thing is this glorious wisdom of God. Y'all, God's hand is all over this passage. The intention of the chief priests and the scribes per Mark 14 was not to do anything public. It was not to do anything around the Passover. You got to read that. But God the Father says it will go public. And it will happen around Passover. In other words, he's using their sinfulness to carry out his plan from the beginning of time to offer up his one and only son so that his wrath could pass over people like you and me who fall short of the glory of God. You got to understand that there are Psalms. That it's, it's Psalm 41 and Psalm 109. These are called the Judas Psalms. Why? Because even Judas's act of betrayal was prophesied in the Psalms where the psalmist says, my, the person who ate bread at my own table, he is the one who betrayed me. You got to understand that behind what the scribes and Judas, what they're doing, they're carrying out God's plan. 
This is God's glorious wisdom to work through the sin of these jokers around Jerusalem in the day of Jesus to carry out his plan of redemption before the foundations of the world. He's working in this passage even through what they're doing. And he's working in the passage through what the woman is doing. There's another psalm, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me to green pastures. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. Thy rod, thy staff, thy comfort me. And then in Psalm 23, you know what it says? You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies and you anoint my head with oil. Jesus is about to have a meal with his enemies in the next chapter. And you want to know what happens to him before he has that meal? We're going to pour oil out on your head, son, because you're going to walk through not just the valley of the shadow of death. You're going to walk through real death. And we're going to be okay on the other side. I'm going to oil you up. I'm going to prepare this body of yours for death. And I'll see you on the other side, son. It's not just the woman at work. The father is at work through the woman to bear truth to the son. And it's Jesus who's working. He is the son who though he was equal with God, did not count equality with God as something to be held onto. But you know what Jesus did with the thing that is most precious to him, and that is his own life? What did he do? He came to the earth and his body was broken. And his blood was poured out that he might make you and me his most prized possession ever. And doesn't that motivate us? When we think about the goodness of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, to not withhold any good thing from us, does that not compel us to hold loosely to the things of the world. May it be so by God's grace. We will sing, take my life and let it be. And we will do this because he gave his life to make us free. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we worship you. We praise you for your word. And Lord, I pray for your people that we would cherish you above all things, that this glorious and great worth of Christ that we see embodied in this passage, that that would be true in our hearts. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.